It's March 12th, 2006, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to Episode 3. Before I start the interview, I want to thank everyone who's taking a listen to the first two episodes. But especially I want to thank those people who've made a commitment to the show by subscribing. You know, it's it's very encouraging that in the very short time that uh, the show has been available, that a, a lot of people have been very excited and liked what they heard on this show to the point that they're willing to add this podcast to the list of podcasts that they listen to on a regular basis. There are a thousand podcasts out there and thousands more coming along the way. And just the fact that you as a listener are making this show part of your life, I'm very grateful. Now, in describing Dan Milner's work, it would be a disservice to simply call him a documentary photographer. It'd also be a disservice to call him a photojournalist or a portrait photographer or wedding photographer because Dan has done all these things but he's not limited by just those genres of photography when you take a look at his work you'll see the amazing breadth of subject matter and and things that he's chosen to photograph and document and to tell stories of with his camera Though he uses primarily black and white to tell his images, his images are more than just beautiful black and white photographs. His photographs tell a story, and whether he's documenting the wedding day of a, of a couple here in Los Angeles, or whether he's documenting the Easter festivities in various towns in Sicily, there's a consistency to his style, to his eye, and there's a sensitivity that he brings to his work that I think you will appreciate when you finally get a look at his images. I'll have a link for his uh, for his website on thecandidframe.com and check it out when you have the chance. But right now, sit back and enjoy our conversation with Dan Milner. I'm here with Daniel Milner, and Daniel, welcome to The Candid Frame. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I want to start with um, your um, your interest in photography, from what I was reading, started because of your mother's interest in using the camera. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how that uh, influenced your interest in photography. I think it uh, it was what planted the seed to me about photography because when I grew up, I grew up in the country, both Indiana and Wyoming, and a little bit in Texas, and uh, there weren't many other kids around. So the nearest the nearest kids my age were fifty miles away, and so I had to spend a lot of time by myself. I had a lot of responsibility as a young uh, young boy, and uh, my mother was a photo fanatic. She had a Pentax K one thousand and shot Kodachrome and always had her camera and it was uh it was basically what planted the seed to me it was it was very normal for me to be around cameras and and to be and being photographed so later in life when uh photography the idea of photography hit me it was still very very familiar to me 
and uh, I, she still influences me today. She still shoots like a like, like a maniac. Sends me four by six prints in the mail all the time. Calls with photo questions. Wants uh, wants prints. So she just saw a picture on my website and and called and said, "I want a sixteen by twenty of that." And I said, "No, no, no. That's a, an edition print." She's like, "I don't care. Give me the first edition." So she's uh, she's still very present for me as a photographer. That's wonderful to have that in the family. That's great. Um, one of the things is that the photography, the, the path that you were taking in your life, uh, changed largely as a result of photography. Mm-hmm. And when, from what I was reading, you were in school, you really had no real clear focus. But then there were some floods that were happening in, in Texas. I guess you were at school at the time. Yeah. And I'm wondering what led you to go out there and take the photographs, you know, during that during that event and what happened as a result of the images well ironically my mother was with me the day that I shot those flood pictures but uh, what happened to me was I had graduated from high school and I went into the merchant marines on a four month merchant marine program went down to South America traveled around didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life but one of the guys that I was on that ship with was a photography buff and so again he had all the cameras and all the gear and was shooting nonstop. and again it kind of put that scene in my head again so I was intending to go to school to be a geologist at a university in San Antonio called Trinity, and they lost my admissions paperwork. So I became somewhat stranded in terms of going to college. And so the only school left open at that time that I could still get into without skipping a semester was called San Antonio College, two-year community school, which unbeknownst to me had an amazing journalism department. So I had picked up a camera somewhere, had it with me. We had this amazing series of floods in San Antonio, and there was a school bus tried to cross a low water crossing. And I happened to be driving along the same road. Bus got about halfway through and died, and it started to be swept away. It was filled with school kids. So I was the first time really for me to be around a dynamic situation like that with a camera. And my mom happened to be there as well, and uh, I got out and started making photographs. And I made the photographs, made the prints, and then just kept them to myself. And uh, one of my friends was in the journalism department at San Antonio College and showed them to the professor of photojournalism who saw them and said, these are really great photos, we want to run them in the paper. And he ran them in the paper and then said, I want to give you a, a scholarship to be a photojournalist. So. That was it. And I never looked at geology again. I never took a geology class, nothing. I was hooked on photography from that moment forward. After school, uh, you didn't go working for a newspaper or for a magazine. At some point, you ended up at Kodak for, for so many years. I did. And, but then in 2001, you decided, I'm going to become a freelance mm-hmm. you know, photographer. And I'm wondering about that transition, because I know it's so easy to get trapped into a oh, nine-to-five yeah. job. And what finally led you to leave that? First off, what, what were you doing for Kodak? But what finally propelled you to make the change into a freelance? And how hard and easy was it to, to make the change? There were a lot of people that were wondering what I was thinking when I left Kodak, because, uh, namely my wife and uh, some of my friends and my parents. Uh, I think what the reason why it was an easy transition for me was that I knew from day one when I started working for Kodak that it was not going to be a career for me. It was a, a period of time. It was a process that I wanted to go through to work for a corporation like that, massive corporation dealing with the upsides and the downsides and the bureaucracies. I'd never worked in that environment before. So I was actually, I started at Kodak as a photographer rep in the field, Southern California, 
which basically was a I was a liaison between the professional photographers in Southern California and the company. So if you had an issue or a question or a problem or you wanted sponsorship, I was the person that you came to. So that kind of spiraled over the years and snowballed, and um, the job I had a little bit more and more responsibility as the years went went on. But Kodak was also transitioning through a, a lot of different uh, situations: the arrival of digital, uh, the transition of their business model, etc. So. I, uh, I did it for almost five years and then decided to go back and shoot full time. And I, I, uh, one of the first things I had to sign when I started with Kodak was a, a, a conflict of interest letter stating that I wouldn't do assignment work while I worked for the company because I'd be competing with the people I was trying to help. So after four or five years of shooting on my own while at Kodak, I realized that that's really what I wanted to do full time again. So I quit the company and went back to shooting full time changing my focus somewhat but into weddings and portraits to to basically finance my own projects which is what I'm still doing today you do a lot of documentary work and in looking at your images I see how the influence of W. Eugene Smith and a lot of other um, you know documentary photographers what's the allure of the of the documentary style work to you a documentary to me is the is the work it's the reason why I take photographs that's the work that's most important to me and uh, I love reality and uh, and trying to photograph reality I think a lot of a lot of photography today is very much about production and producing work and for me walking around with the camera doing documentary work reduces the idea of photography down to the basic level I basically pick a story I go I don't need access anything I just go and make photographs and uh, it's all about light and timing and composition and nothing else. And that's, uh, that's the photography that influenced me to get into photography in the first place. <clears throat> the uh, work of Larry Burroughs and Gene Smith and photographers like that where I looked and said, wow, these are real moments happening in the world. These guys are witnesses standing there making these photographs. And that's, uh, I try to take that philosophy into all the work that I do, whether I'm shooting kids' portraits or actually working on a documentary project. It's all, it's all the same to me. I don't... I don't like to orchestrate. I don't like to set things up, and I just like to let them happen. And sometimes you get images, and sometimes you don't, and that's something that I can live with. Then, in deciding what particular project you're going to be working on, because you're typically working on them for an extended period of time, mm -hmm. how do you come to decide what the what the subject is going to be, and what are the logistics that you have to consider in in creating the situation where you can be there in that moment to capture the photographs. And if you could specifically uh, answer those questions in, in the context of your Easter in Sicily series. I think each project has its own life and own flavor to it. And each one demands its own certain kind of logistics. Easter in Sicily is uh, this year in April, I'll be returning there, which will be my fourth year. Um, and that story is you know, the, the great thing about it at the same time every year so I can put it on the calendar a year away and say okay I need to block off these dates to be able to get there um, the logistics of Sicily I don't speak Italian so I have to uh, deal with that and uh, I have people on the ground in Sicily that are able to help me and uh, a, a really fantastic photographer in Palermo named Giovanni Mata who's a former photographer and uh, is a guy who grew up there and he speaks a language, knows everyone, everywhere, amazing friend, amazing chef. He's a guy that when I hit the ground in Palermo is somebody that I'm with the whole time who's able to help me research 
what specific towns are happening, what's happening in each place, what time it's going to happen. The thing about Sicily is it's such a many of the areas that I go to are very remote, and there's no sense of uh, being able for me living in America to be able to research what exactly is going to happen in that town. So before I go, I research a general region of the country. I pick the towns that I think I want to work in. I make a loose schedule in terms of what I think is going to happen when. Then I get to Palermo and everything changes within the first 24 hours. He looks at my list and says, you know, that town doesn't exist. That town moved their event two days later. And uh, I have to be, I have to just roll with it. And uh, it changes, changes from day to day. So this year I'm going to base myself out of Palermo. I was going to base myself uh, in the southeastern part of the country, but I found out that uh, inf- some information about that that wasn't so great. So I decided to stay in Palermo, and uh, I'm trying to work this year with another Sicilian photographer who has been doing a similar type project for, I think, at least 15 years now. So he's, uh, he's a great guy, and uh, hopefully I'll be able to hook up with him this year. How imp- you're just speaking about your friend Giovanni, and mm-hmm. how important is having someone who's familiar with the area in in successfully sort of navigating and documenting um, it for for a project? I think uh, it can be the make or break part of the project, especially if you don't speak the if you don't speak the language. Um, I've worked with people in Guatemala and Cambodia and, and Sicily and a lot of other places. Um, sometimes it's really fun, entertaining, and fantastic to go out completely on your own. You don't speak the language, and you can still work and get amazing photographs. But if you're trying to get a really in-depth piece or you need subtle aspects of what a story or a country or a certain topic is about, sometimes it's you, you can't do it without having somebody helping you out. So I love walking around by myself and shooting. And this year I will be doing a lot of that in Sicily. We'll be walking around. But when it comes to crunch time or if I need something really specific, um, it's great to work with somebody like Giovanni. That's, you, can just get a, you can get to a depth that you can't get on your own. You shoot primarily black and white negative film for a lot of the documentary work. You do work with color I've seen in, in some of your more sort of commercial work for your weddings and, and portraits. But what's the allure to you of black and white Tri-X film? Oh, I think it was uh, the first time I ever saw black and white film. Uh, I knew that that was probably what I was going to work work in for the, the duration of my, of my life. I, I really like to work in both black and white and color, but um, black and white to me eliminates thing, it, it eliminates things that I think sometimes are a little bit distracting. I think some photographs can be strictly about color and you can kind of lose track of what, what the moment is is in the actual photograph. So black and white to me just reduces what I'm doing to... I want people to focus on the moment of, and the action of what's happening in the photograph. And sometimes black and white strips away all of anything that's distracting and just allows you to focus on that one particular aspect. Um, plus, I love grain. If you, if you look at a lot of my stuff, I shoot a lot of 3200 speed film. Uh, I use a lab in Hollywood called Photo Impact and the owner came out a couple years ago and said everybody comes in here and they're always trying to get us to eliminate the grain how do you eliminate the grain and he said you come in here and it's the exact opposite your pictures are just a sea of grain there's a texture to it Um, I love the way that uh, black and white film to me is a very easy product to work with it looks fantastic right out of the box Um, 
color film can be the same way. I've started to shoot a lot more color negative than I did. Years ago when I first started, when I did shoot color, it was always transparency film. I haven't really worked with transparency in probably 10 years. And uh, if I do shoot color now, and I'm not using digital, if I do use color film, it's always color negative. And um, I see similar aspects of color negative that in some ways reminds me of black and white film. You have the same texture and contrast and um, that to me is absolutely key, critical, especially today in the digital world because I think digital doesn't really have a lot of texture. It's perfectly smooth and, and grainless and um, that can look really good, but my heart's still with grain. I love it. I can't get enough grain. When looking at your images, it's to me, it's much more than just the fact that you're using black and white and you're doing traditional documentary work in which you're putting yourself in a very interesting or exciting you know, situation and documenting it. When I look at a lot of your compositions, you're doing a lot of extreme framing, um, using a lot of dark tones in order to bring attention to certain... Usually it's the opposite. Usually it's the use of highlight to direct the, the person's eye. But I look at a lot of your images, it seems that you're using shadow in order to achieve the same result. And I'm wondering how much of that is sort of intuitive or something that you've learned over time? I think it's a little bit of both. I've, um, when I went to photojournalism school and I took the first black and white class, the, the first black and white fiber or silver-based prints I ever made uh, they told me, you can't print that way. You have to print for tonal range and use the zone system. And I said, I don't really, that's not the way that I really see this. I like to print things. I like dark, contrasty, and grain. I like to be able to take I, shadow detail. This is not really, I've never really been concerned with that. I really love to print the shadows down. And that basically does what you said. It drives the viewer's eye towards the part of the frame that I, that I really want them to see. Um, and I try to do that with my color as well. A lot of times I, I uh, am underexposing a lot of what I do because I'm not as concerned with, uh, with trying to save anything in the shadows. I want the, the darkness. And I'm, I'm realizing now that uh, there are other photographers who, who, are this, who are the same way. I just discovered a Portuguese photographer named Paolo Nazolino. And he has a book called Far Cry that's uh, basically exactly the way that I like to print. It's like I found someone whose work, to me, really immediately spoke to me. And uh, I think his philosophy looks to be the, looks to be the same. It's dark is good. Yeah, when I first saw the prints of Eugene Smith, uh, Roy DeCarava, that's exactly what they're doing. They, they throw away a lot of detail in the shadows in order to emphasize that part of the image that they want to bring out. And it's not just dependent on just highlight or, you know, the whole zone system. Exactly. So it's, it's despite all the advances that, that have happened, it, it just gives you the realization that there's more than one way to look at a world, look at the world and look at a photograph. Exactly. I, I think so. And, and I think uh, in today's photography world especially, because I think uh, the digital revolution has been fantastic in a lot of different ways. I love the technology. I love using digital equipment from on certain types of shoots, but I think in some areas it's really homogenized uh, the look of what photographers are giving. I know especially in the wedding industry, I think the vast majority of work in the wedding industry now is done with digital equipment and to a, a, a certain degree it's homogenized the look. And so I'm one of the few people who still uses film for all my wedding work, and um, and I shoot film for a wedding the same way I do documentaries. I'm I'm not really concerned about shadow detail. I want that same kind of look, 
And I'm not specifically doing that to try to make a different look, but I hear, <clears throat> I hear it from my clients. Why does your work look different? Why, is, why does your stuff look so different than the rest of the stuff that we see? And I think that that's, that's a part of it. I mean, it's, um, you know, you hold, I think with film, you make your decisions in the field. And with the digital equipment, you're making them later on. And I think I'm just ingrained to make my decisions in the field and, and live with it. I'm happy with the looks that I have, and it's just going out and, and doing them over and over again. One of the other documentary projects that I looked at that I was really intrigued by was the uh, Paradise series in which you went and visited, uh, I think, was it 11, um, 11 towns in the U.S. that exactly. are in Paradise? And... In looking at the images, it was my reaction to it was sort of a, a sense of, of melancholy and yearning, um, and I think it was uh, largely because of your use of tone in that, and also just creating, taking advantage of a lot of open space and not filling the frame with a bunch of information, but being pretty. Um, I want to see, not say we were conservative, that's not the right word, but being pretty selective of what you put into the frame. And I want to ask you about the, the project, but particularly in shooting the images and in choosing the ones that were going to represent the project. The Paradise Project, to me, I've so far I've been to four of the 11 towns, so it's an ongoing project. It's a self-produced project. And uh, the reason why I started to do that was I wanted a project that kind of reduced photography to me back to what it was when I first got into it, which was me alone walking around with the camera, working on a project, and basically talking to people. And I knew there was that project to me was going to be a little different from the beginning because it wasn't so much about sophisticated photography. I think the Sicilian work is a little bit more visually sophisticated. I think some people get it and other people uh, are not going to get it. Uh, with the Paradise work, it's all shot medium format, so I'm working a little bit slower. And I wanted a combination of two things. <clears throat> I wanted simple, straightforward photographs combined with what came out of people's mouths. And one thing, I, the project started out, in my opinion, to be a, a somewhat of a humorous look at what it was like to live in these towns called paradise. But I think the word that you describe, melancholy, I think is a really good way to describe it. Because very soon after doing a couple of these towns, I realized it's there really is no paradise per se and paradise means different things to different people and in some cases these were pretty sad little towns and uh, I would do one town think that I had a pretty good understanding of what it was about then I would go to the next paradise and it would make me completely rethink what was happening in the first one so uh, I've done Arizona and California and Texas and Utah and I've got several more planned for this year but um, it's been a popular story with people and I think it's a, it is a combination of the the photographs aren't as uh, layered they're not there's not as much wide-angle work most of it was shot with a with a 50 millimeter or equivalent on a medium format camera which is basically a very straightforward way of looking at things I think it's a difficult lens to use but it's not flashy it just makes you kind of analyze the overall photograph then you read the quote next to it from what someone in the same town had said and uh, it's been an absolute blast, and I can't wait to go to the next uh, the next stop. Yeah, when listeners go to the website, I recommend that they, and I'll have a link for it on on the site. But definitely take the time to read the captions because that the photographs are already wonderful, but the quotes, some of them had me laughing out loud. It was it was great. One of the things that people are often challenged about, particularly when they're photographing in an environment that they're not comfortable in, 
is approaching people. Mm-hmm. Um, in situations, in this situation, oftentimes you you didn't have a guide like you did in, in Sicily. Right. So when you go into a town with a camera where most people are not accustomed to some guy walking in a camera, much less a complete stranger, you know, how did you, you meet that challenge and what did you have to do in order to ingratiate yourself and, and create more intimate pictures than you otherwise might be able to do? I think uh, early on, the, one of the first newspaper assignments I ever had was uh, I had to photograph a, a speaker in front of a large audience, and I was very, very nervous because I thought everybody in the room was going to be looking at me. And I made the decision early on that um, I just I don't I couldn't care about that stuff. I just needed to go and do do my work. And so the paradise story for me is really fun. I love driving around. I love approaching people who are not used to being photographed, who have no idea who I am. In a way, I, I, it's almost like torturing myself a little bit and. Because of that, doing the Paradise Project, I've actually started a new project called the, it's called the Thoughts of Strangers. And I purposely go out, not only do I meet people that I don't know, but I immediately photograph them. I shoot a very quick one to two minute portrait, one roll of film, and then I ask them what they were thinking about immediately before I started photographing them. And then I combine the contact sheet with a single image pulled from the contact sheet and the quote from what the, what the person had to say. In addition to that, I model release all of these people. And this this story was a continuation of the Paradise Project in a way because I thought, this is really fantastic. Most of the people that I'm running into are very open to being, not only being photographed, but they will literally tell me the most int- intimate secrets of their life uh, after having met me five minutes ago. And to me, that's the one of the most fantastic things about photography is it not only puts you in these places, but that camera is just an invitation to, to put yourself in other locations, other people's lives. It's a very educational thing, and it, uh, I absolutely love that aspect of it. I know that there's a lot of people that are uncomfortable with walking up and talking to strangers, and at times, you really have to be careful. The first person in Paradise, Texas said, uh, you know this is Texas, and uh, we all have guns, so be, be careful what houses you walk up to. And uh, but that that's a part of the fun. I love it. And some people say no and get off my property and get away from me. And that's just a part of uh, part of it. You have to deal with. You know, I makes you feel a little a little uncomfortable. But you move on. And somewhere down the road, there's somebody that's uh, just waiting for you to come along. The choice to become a documentary photographer is, is an interesting one, considering the times that we live in. Um, the heyday of documentary photography is often seen to have happened between like the 40s and and kind of tapered off towards the other 70s. And the choice to, to be a documentary photographer in, in, in a society where the cult of celebrity is of more importance is a difficult one, particularly because the market for such images is, is small. Mm-hmm. And while it's very gratifying personally to be able to create the images, the real gratification comes from sharing the story. Sure. So how do you contend with, you know, your desire to create the image, but also not only just to make a living, but to have an audience for your work? Uh, I think I'm somewhat of an oddity in that sense. Uh, For a long, long time, for at least 10 years, I would work on my documentary projects. And when I was finished with them, I would file them away in my archive and I never showed them to anyone. The, The idea for me, the adventure of actually going, the experience of making the photographs was what fueled me. That's all that I, that I cared about. And about, Two years ago, I, that started to change for me. Uh, I started. I went to a couple of big photo events, uh, showed a little bit of work around, and the reception to the work was really good. And I, it, it was kind of exciting for me again. So 
I decided that I wanted to try to transition back into getting my work out there and trying to get published and maybe trying to do a book and things like that. Um, the, the great part about working today is that we have so many avenues of where this work can end up. Uh, that can also be a bad thing because people, are, it's pretty fractured. It's like where do people get their news? They may get it from the internet or the newspaper or the TV. There's a million different outlets. Uh, but today, I, I think you have so many things you can take advantage of through the internet, multimedia, magazines, books. Um, the United States does not have a very solid documentary market. It's very difficult to sell images here. It's extremely difficult in Southern California because you're so close to Los Angeles and everything is celebrity orientated. Um, I don't really have any desire to work in the in the celebrity fields or to do work around celebrities. Although, if somebody said, "Hey, you can do documentary work of celebrity, real documentary work of celebrities," that to me would be fantastic because one, you'd have a, a, an instant market that would sell like crazy. And um, I think you, too, would be showing pictures of people and and a variety of pictures of these people that we never see because so much of what is done in Hollywood is controlled that um, typically when you see celebrity work, it's portraiture. And after a while, they all, to me, start to look somewhat similar. And so it would be really fantastic if you could look back to the guys like William Claxton, who spent so much time with Steve McQueen and Chet Baker, and you look at that work and think, man, why is nobody doing that today? That's like the history. A historical body of work from this particular person and uh, I don't think anybody's doing that anymore hmm. so I, if I could get that I would do it tomorrow photographers make a living and make a career of, of photographing other people's lives but they're often very poor in documenting their own and I know that you um, keep diaries photo diaries of your work but not, and I, I want to talk about that. But not just about the photographs, but the, the, the fact that you actively write mm -hmm. in conjunction with those those diaries. And I want to start off from the quote that Carl Mydans uh, told you, and how that has influenced uh, the diaries that you keep. Yeah, I, I ran into him years ago, and uh, I think it was in Perpignan, France, at the Visa Port Hommage, and he said um, he he kind of lowered himself down and he, he pulled me aside and he said, you know, photography is great, but but for God's sakes, write everything down. And he, uh, from what I understand, carried journals around with him and, and wrote constantly. Uh, I started out as a writer before I was a photographer, and so it's always been a natural thing. And I carry a journal. I've kept one for probably 15 years now. It's a book that I keep with me all the time. I try to write every day. And uh, photography, to me, one of the most important aspects is, is of a historical document. And so I record everything, uh, whether it's writing or photography. I keep not only written photo written journals, but also photo journals, and then I have books that are a combination of the two. Um, and to me, I look at it as an archive. It's something that I want to be around in 100 years or 200 years. I love going back through other people's books and photo albums that, that still exist. And uh, consequently, archiving to me is a really important subject matter, especially in the in the digital age, trying to make sure that the work that I'm doing now is going to be around in, in 50 years. But writing and keeping the journal is, um, I can't imagine not doing it. It's, it's such a part of me that at the end of the day, if I haven't done it, it's almost like something kicks in in the back of my head that says, you have this information inside of you and you need to get it out. Because if it builds up and it builds up, it's not going to be a good thing. So... I use it as a, as a release and it's also very helpful in the field working because it, it allows me to, to jot down many things that I would, I'm sure, forget if I didn't have them in writing. You do a good amount of teaching and <clears throat> I'm curious as you, 
as you are you know, teaching an art center and other and other places, you're teaching to a generation that has been probably more bombarded with images and and media than any other generation uh, before. And when you walk into those classrooms, classrooms, I'm wondering what sort of differences are you seeing from those students in terms of their interest in photography and the potential for photography to be used as a media to communicate, especially personal stories, because it's so much being, images today are primarily being used to sell you something, and the emphasis in being able to tell personal stories seems to be like a lost art, and I'm wondering how you, you know, uh, teach your students the, the potential and power of that. I've been very, very fortunate uh, in a couple of couple of ways in terms of teaching. Uh, Julia Dean, who has the workshop series in Venice, uh, asked me to teach there a couple of times. So I've done a few workshops there. And then last year, Dennis Keeley, who's the, now the chair at the Art Center, uh, called me and said, look, we want to do some classes, new classes at the Art Center, and can you co-teach a class uh, over the summer? And so I had never worked on, a, on a, at a scale like Art Center, and I was a little intimidated by doing that. But... Luckily, the person that I was co-teaching with, um, Patrick Hebert, was, was fantastic, and Dennis was very, very helpful. And we taught a class about um, photographers working with nonprofit organizations, which was a, a class that hadn't been taught at Art Center before. And I think uh, that today's photo student um, has a lot of, almost in, in a way, there's, there's so many opportunities. You have to try and narrow down what it is that you want to do. Um, many of the classes uh, are about uh, you know working for magazines and producing ad and corporate work and so telling personal stories I think all it takes for the students today is to get a taste of it and that's that's basically what the class at Art Center was about they don't have a photojournalism program or a documentary program so most of these students were in the fine art series or they were in the commercial series trying to be commercial advertising photographers so all we did was put them in the position where they would have a taste of what this work was like to work with on a more of a documentary story telling the real life story of a certain person or an organization and uh, basically you just give them a little push put them in the right push them in the right direction and they take off and that's the um, the beauty of it it doesn't doesn't take many times many chances to go out in the field and make these photographs and the first first couple of times you get good images and you come back it's you just get addicted to it and you realize that, you know, wow, I can go out and I can help uh, a nonprofit organization reinvent their visual identity to how the rest of the world is going to identify with this organization. Real people, real situations. They went out, they did it, and it was, it was fantastic. One of the questions I'm asking photographers is if you could recommend one particular photographer for people to explore either by going to exhibit and checking out their images or picking up monographs and looking at their work who would that be and why I have to do just one that's uh just one one, is really really hard um you know who I'm gonna say is uh there's two people and they're so neck and neck but I will Sally Mann is one of them but the second one is uh Dwayne Michaels and Gene Smith was a huge influence to me but I Dwayne Michaels is um not only a fantastic photographer, but he's has fantastic ideas uh, and the way that he communicates his work in terms of writing, photography, journals, books, and his sense of humor is fantastic. I went to a show of his in New York a couple of years ago. I've heard him lecture a few times. Um, he's not somebody that I, I go out and try to emulate in terms of his photography just because I have I use a different style and my work is a little bit different, but the... Uh, 
I guess the persona and the, the, the entity that he is is really, really magical. Very unlike anybody that I, I know in the photography industry. And I think regardless of what you shoot, I don't, it could be sports or it could be fashion, I think you can learn something from him. And Sally Mann, what did you want to say about her? Sally Mann is, is along the same lines. I think uh, when I first found Sally Mann's work, uh, I, I just I couldn't stop looking at it. And again, it's not work that I have ever tried to go out and emulate. It's very different. It's very unique. But uh, there's just an absolute magnitude, a power to that work. And you can spot a Sally Mann picture a mile away. And it's uh, the other thing is, again, I think her work, I look at it as a historical document. She's shooting very, in, in a way, simple subject matter but remaining with that subject matter year after year after year and you get a depth and a clarity in the work that you can't get as a you know quick hitting from one one assignment to the next uh, her work is fantastic she actually called me one time when i worked for kodak out of the blue i thought it was a crank call i thought it was a friend of mine and she said hi this is sally mann and i'm at my farm in virginia or wherever she lives and she said i need to buy a digital camera which is what made me believe that it was a crank call because you know she shoots like 8 by 10 or whatever and uh, it was actually her, and she was looking for a little point-and-shoot digital camera, so I got to talk to her uh, a couple of years ago, which was one of my highlights. Well, this has been a highlight for me to, to have a chance to talk to you, and I'm glad that you, that you agreed to do it. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you for uh, allowing me to be a part. enjoyed that interview. I certainly enjoyed conducting it. It reminds me that, that sometimes the best photography isn't so much a result of the equipment that's used or the technique that's practiced, but rather the personal vision that the uh, individual photographer brings to his or, or her work. Well, thanks again for joining me. And again, visit us at www thecandidframe.com or send me an email at thecandidframe at gmail.com Till next time, this is Ivarian X. Perella and this is The Candid Frame.